Welcome to Bethany United Methodist Church. If you're just now tuning in with us and joining us, uh, we're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, uh, This is Bethany United Methodist Church where we are uh, leading people to experience God's love, to know Jesus Christ, and to grow in His image. And we're glad you've joined with us. On the right-hand side of your screen, you'll see a live chat going on over there. And uh, if you have questions uh, as we're going through this, please reach out to our brothers and sisters online and uh, have that conversation with the, them. Uh, this is Memorial Day weekend, uh, uh, but this year it also happens to be Aldersgate Day. And today is the specific day, May 24th. Uh, when John, uh, that's the anniversary of John Wesley's events at uh, Aldersgate. Uh, it's a rather crucial piece of our history as Wesleyan Methodist uh, and something that we come across every year and mark every year. Uh, so this morning what I want to do is spend a little time t- talking about it, setting the background for it, and, and helping you understand why this is an important piece uh, for us to understand. The first thing I want to do is reach back into his journal from May 24th of 1738 when Wesley wrote, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, at the time that Wesley pins these words, uh, he is uh, only a few months short of his 36th birthday. Uh, He is a priest in the Church of England, uh, a former missionary. And I know when I read this the first time, I thought, how is it possible that you could uh, be of that age and be a priest in the church and not understand that your sins had been forgiven? But as I've lived longer, I've realized that uh, there are a lot of us in that same boat with John Wesley. And so I want to spend a little time this morning setting the background for that and explaining to you why that's so important. Uh, Join with me in prayer. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your presence with us this day. We ask your spirit to open our hearts and minds to what it is you would say to us on this day. Uh, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts acceptable in your sight for you are our rock and our redeemer amen now now john wesley grew up in the household of a church of england priest Uh, this is the rectory as they call it in epworth uh, what we would now think of as the parsonage where his family lived Uh, this is a, a rebuilding of the original building the original building burned down and this one was built in its place uh, and, and this is very much uh, the same as the original building, however. And, and growing up here, uh, he studied a lot under his mother's tutelage. Uh, his mother, Susanna, uh, taught all the kids uh, in the home, and uh, they, they learned Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Uh, they memorized passages of Scripture. They read the writings of the early church fathers. Uh, and in fact, uh, by the time John would be getting ready to go to school, Uh, He probably knew more scripture and was probably more educated in theology uh, than many of our graduating seminarians are, and certainly more than what I knew, I think, when I graduated from seminary. Uh, But in this house, a a really pivotal event took place. When John was five years old, there was a fire in the house. Everyone else got out, uh, but John was trapped on the second floor. And there's a rather famous painting of that night. Uh, And as you can see, the house is up in flames, and and a group formed at the last minute, and they did kind of a human pyramid and plucked him from the second floor of the building. 
Uh, and that turned out to be a, a momentous moment. Uh, he understood, and his mother Susanna both understood, that when he was plucked at that moment from the second floor of the building, that, that they interpreted that to mean that God had a specific and, and special purpose for him, uh, which is something he internalized and lived with, uh, sometimes to his advantage, sometimes to his disadvantage uh, through his life. But he understood at an early age that God had, had a special call that he had placed upon his life. Now, his dad's church in Epworth is this building. Uh, this is the uh, Epworth Church. Uh, it's uh, over 900 years old. And uh, when we were in this church a couple of years back and we were visiting, uh, the steward of the church was explaining to us that, that this is the same building. They've done repairs on it, but it's the same building they've been worshiping in all that time. And then he looked at us and he said, for you Americans, let me help you understand this. He said, when, when your ancestors landed on Plymouth Rock, the pilgrims, he said, what year was that? And we, we said, 1620 is what we came up with. And he says, that's right. He says, when, when your ancestors landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620, my ancestors had already been worshiping in this building for 500 years. Now, sometimes we Americans need to remember our, our, our place in history and not... Uh, become too impressed with ourselves. They'd already been worshiping for 500 years. They still worship in this building. It is still an active church, uh, still in use. And in the building, uh, the baptistry is still in use. And uh, this is the same one that John and Charles would have been baptized in. So they grew up in the church. They were educated in the church. Their mother taught them in the church. And from an early age, from that five years old on, John always had in his mind that he was going to be a priest of England like his father Samuel was. So, so when he finished uh, and got his undergrad, or what we would call public school uh, kind of education, uh, he went to Christ Church College at the University of Oxford. Uh, this is a photo of it from... Uh, our approach that day, and, and began his studies there, going toward uh, his studies to become an Anglican priest. Uh, the Great Dining Hall is one of the places that would have been a common space in this, and as you look at this photo of it, many of you will go, that looks kind of familiar, and, and if it does, it's because the, the Great Dining Hall in, of Hogwarts and Harry Potter is based on this room. Uh, and matter of fact, when we were touring and we were going through this room, there were all these guys in capes and stuff walking around, and, and I'm turning to my wife going, what, what's up with all these people? in capes and she's going it's they're harry potter fans oh okay I had, it hadn't connected for me but this is the room and this is where they would have taken it and uh, there's actually a painting of both john and charles on the walls in this room uh, in christchurch the cathedral uh, the nave of the cathedral uh, was an important place this is where they would have worshiped while they were there and uh, it's in this space that both john and charles would be ordained as priests of england uh, there's a marker that kind of that you know that this is a where that happened. Uh, so, so they were ordained in this place. Now, now the history goes like this. John, of course, is the older. He goes to school first. He graduates from Christ Church. He goes back to Epworth, to his uh, father's church, uh, and serves that church for a couple of years before Oxford comes to him and says, we would like you to come back and serve as a tutor to some of our students and do some, and present some lectures. So John refer, returns to Oxford uh, right at the beginning of what is Charles second year at Christ Church. Now, now when John gets there, uh, one of the things that happens is Charles asks him to join them. Charles's first year at Christ Church uh, was rather misspent in riotous living. Uh, now, um, you know, some of you are thinking that that's something that only happens now. I want you to know it's been going on a long time, uh, so uh, you're in good company. Charles Wesley did that. Uh, but recognizing that, Charles had formed a small group uh, to hold him accountable 
Uh, and when John came back, he asked John to come and join them as the spiritual director of this group. And they referred to themselves as the Holy Club. Uh, they met every morning for a time of, of prayer, uh, scripture reading. They shared Holy Communion. Uh, they asked questions of accountability for each other about how they were living out in their faith. Uh, they made plans to, uh, to act on their faith, such as they visited prisons and prayed with the, the local prisoners. Uh, and so they, they started this process, this discipline of meeting every morning. And, and as you might imagine, other students at the university looked at this group who came every morning and gathered and called themselves the Holy Club and, and thought they were a bit strange. In fact, they said they think that they have discovered a method for holiness, and so they became known as Methodist, which originally was a term of derision. Uh, and then God, in his great humor, uh, later made it uh, the name of the denomination and the movement. Uh, but but that was their history. Now, when Charles finishes his time at the university, graduates and is ordained, he and John have this conversation, decide that God has called them to be missionaries in the colonies. And so they sign up, they come across to the colony of Georgia, to Savannah, uh, to serve Christ Church in Savannah and also be missionaries to the Native Americans of Georgia. They are really abysmal failures at both of these uh, in a lot of ways, uh, alienating a lot of people. Uh, Charles insisted on doing baptism by immersion of infants immersing them completely three times in a row, uh, which enraged some of the local parents to the point that one of the mothers took a shot at him. And, uh, and so after a year, Charles fled back to London. John lasted two years, but in his time there, he uh, became involved with a member of the governor's family in a romantic relationship that went awry. Uh, and the outcome of that was that he and the governor's family became estranged to the point that he refused them communion which in a British colony was not something to do, and so a writ of warrant was issued for his arrest. And, uh, and, and he also fled back to London at the end of his second year. And he and Charles reunited in London, and both of them in a place where they felt that they were both uh, truly failures as priests, uh, failures as persons, as Christians. Uh, when you read through their journals in this time, it, it's a very dark time in their lives. Now, now on their trip over to Georgia, their ship had encountered a rather fierce storm at sea, and everybody on board was terrified and afraid that the ship was going to go under. And as John and Charles were also terrified, they went below decks and found in one of the cabins a, a group of people who were in a circle uh, praying and, and reading scripture and singing. And, and they said, how can you be so calm? Aren't, aren't you afraid? And they said, no, we're, we're not afraid for our lives or even for the lives of our children. And, and John and Charles joined with them and were deeply impressed at the strength of their faith and the confidence of their trust in God in this time. Uh, this was a group of Moravians who were on their way to the colony uh, to be as missionaries. That made a deep impression on them. They remembered that. So when they had gotten back to London and they were walking through the streets of London one day, they crossed paths with a, name, a gentleman by the name of Peter Bowler, who was a Moravian missionary. Peter invited them to join them at his society meeting, a uh, small group meeting uh, for the Moravians that met on Aldersgate Street. 
And so that's where they were on May 24th when this event that I read you uh, the journal about occurred er earlier. Aldersgate uh, actually is named for uh, a former gate in the old city walls of London. Uh, if you go there now, there's a plaque that marks the, the location where the gate would have been. Uh, it's uh, about two blocks from St. Paul's Cathedral. And, uh, and right near this, maybe um, 50 yards from that or so, uh, in front of a, 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 another building, there's this bronze, uh, this is things actually is about 10 feet tall. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to see this bronze flame. And on this flame are inscribed the words of John Wesley's journal from that night. Uh, this is assumed to be the actual location where that room was. Now, the, this area was heavily damaged during World War II, so it's all been rebuilt, but these markers are there to help you kind of orient yourself to that place. And, and as they were there that night, when John had this powerful experience of God's presence and God's forgiveness and acceptance, um, some of the passages out of Romans that Luther might have been commenting on sound like this, from Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then going on in the fifth chapter, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I mean, he heard these words and Luther's comment to the book and the way Luther grasped this being justified by faith alone and for the first time in his life, it connected for Wesley. It connected. Now, I want you to understand that John Wesley's theology is primarily orthodox within the Christian tradition. Uh, he understands uh, many of the concepts like a lot of the rest of the church does, and certainly the concept of original sin. He says, is man by nature filled with all manner of evil? 
Is he void of all good? Is he wholly fallen? Is his soul totally corrupted? Or to come back to the text, is every imagination of the thoughts of his heart evil continually? Allow this and you are so far a Christian. Deny it and you are but a heathen still. He holds to this concept of original sin, uh, which is very similar to the Orthodox Church and Luther and a number of other writers, Calvin, a number of theologians of the day. Um, and so he, this idea that, that we were created in the image of God, but, but we have been corrupted by sin. Now, when you listen to these words, I suspect they may sound a little rough to you. Uh, and I want to suggest to you that that's because we tend to hear these words in terms of comparing ourselves to others. You know, it says, you know, is he wholly corrupt and so forth? And we say, well, you know, if I'm that way, what about Bob over there? Or what about Sally? I mean, they're worse than I am. And so we're kind of doing that, which reflects something of our insecurity. But, but what Wesley is talking about is not comparing yourself to your brothers and sisters. He's talking about comparing yourself to the image of God in which we were created. You see, the scripture tells us we were originally created to be image bearers of God. Uh, we were supposed to be a, a sign. Somebody could look on us and see what God looks like. And through us, God's blessing was to be given to the world. So I want you to think about it for a minute. If I were to be able to watch you for a week or so of your life without being, don't get caught in the creepiness of this. But if I was to be able to watch that, at the end of that week, would I point to you and say, yeah, that's exactly what God looks like? At the end of the week, would I would say, yes, everywhere that person went, God's blessing was poured out. I suspect that if we're honest with ourselves, none of us would say yes. We, we all recognize our brokenness and our fallenness. Wesley's just being more honest about it than what we often are. But Wesley's also going to say, listen, this is who we are. We're, we're corrupted by original sin. But at the same time, he's going to say, but, but God doesn't leave us there because at the moment we're born, God gifts us with what he called prevenient grace. Now, we talk about grace and the shorthand definition is God's unearned, undeserved, loving action on our behalf. God, out of love, acts for us, whether we have done anything or not to earn it. God acts for us out of love. And God's prevenient grace is that grace that comes to us before we even know we need it. Wesley would tell you that that prevenient grace is given to us in the moment of our birth. It indwells us. And, and if we have any sense before our salvation, if we have any sense of right or wrong, if we have any conscious, conscience, if we have any sense of our lacking, of our sinfulness, that is a gift of God's grace that is given to us. Not that we're born with, but it is a gift of God's grace. God gifts us by stirring up into us an awareness of right and wrong, an awareness of our need for God, an awareness of our sinfulness. So, so God gives us that grace to make us aware of it, not so that we're going to earn our way into heaven, but so that we know that we have to come to God. Wesley reinforces this as he writes in his uh, <clears throat> Sermon the Righteousness of Faith. He says, Neither say in your heart, I cannot be accepted yet because I am not good enough. Who is good enough? Whoever was to merit acceptance at God's hand? Was ever any child of Adam good enough for this? 
reflects this attitude that many of us get that say, well, you know, if we admit we're sinful, that means we're not really good enough for God to love us. But the whole point of this was that Wesley was saying, no, that's not the point. It doesn't matter. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to earn it. It's grace. It's given in spite of. It's given freely to us. And it comes to us. God pours it out on us even before we know we need it in this prevenient grace that draws us to God eventually maybe after 35 or 36 years, and draws us into a realization that in Christ Jesus, God, while we were still enemies of God, God offers himself up on the cross to give us forgiveness and to reconnect us in a right relationship with God. It's a gift of God's love. If you haven't had that experience, uh, one of his uh, uh, members of his early societies was talking to uh, Wesley writing to Wesley in letters and saying, no, I, I don't know that I can ever uh, approach God. I'll never be good enough to approach God. And Wesley encouraged him and said, look for it just as you are, talking about his salvation, unfit, unworthy, unholy, by simple faith every day, every hour. You're not going to earn it. It's, it's a gift. It's given to you. One of Wesley's geniuses uh, coming out of this was to recognize the distinction uh, between being forgiven and, and being recreated in God's image. He would talk about justification, which is that great work which God does for us in forgiving our sins. Uh, when Christ offers himself up as an atonement and we're, we're forgiven and reunited with God, he would separate that from the idea of regeneration or new birth, which works in us by what later would come to be known as sanctifying grace. Uh, that great work which God does in us, renewing our fallen nature, where God is working in us to restore us to that image that we were originally created in. So this separation was one of the things that, that was new to Wesley as he began to work with that and actually uh, ended up being uh, one of the places where there was some uh, debate and concern uh, among different theologians. Uh, early in the 20th century, uh, William Fitzgerald would write what became known as the four alls of Methodism. All people need to be saved from sin. All people may be saved from sin. All people may know they are saved from sin. And all people may be saved to the uttermost. All people need to be saved from sin is a reflection of, of Wesley's understanding of original sin. That we all are in, this, in that category. All people may be saved from sin is what he's talking about, is justification and prevenient grace that brings us to God and then reunites us with God and pours out forgiveness upon us. All people may know they are saved from sin is what would come to be known as a doctrine of the assurance of salvation or the witness of the Spirit. And all people may be saved to the uttermost. The regeneration, the new birth, uh, worked in us by sanctifying grace. Uh, Wesley sometimes referred to it as being perfected in love. Now, that word may in there is an important word to see because it reflects that in Wesley's theology, grace is always both free and cooperant. In other words, it's freely offered, but it's not forced upon us. It's freely offered, and we choose how we respond to that. So when you look at the first part of, of Wesley's life as he's moving through this time, you see that, that that prevenient grace is already at work in him. He's aware of his own shortcoming. But instead of turning to God, he keeps trying to make himself right, which unfortunately is what too many of us try to do. Uh, and instead of turning to God, we keep trying to justify ourselves, which I'm convinced is the root of so much insecurity in our world because 
at heart, we never can do it. And there's an awareness in us that we can't do it, but we keep trying anyway. And I think some of that leads to all of our, uh, the pervasiveness of the uh, being offended in our society, uh, because there's a basic insecurity in all of, of us that we are not dealing with by turning back to God. And so anytime anyone says anything, we become offended because they pushed on that insecurity. But Wesley discovered when he turned to God on May 24th that when he brought himself unworthy as he was in the presence of God, that his sins, even mine, are forgiven. That his assurance was given him that he was saved in Jesus Christ. And that doctrine of assurance became an important piece of Wesley's theology, that you could know you were saved, that you could live out of the joy of the knowledge of your salvation, and that this work of regeneration was done not to earn God's favor, but in response to this wonderful gift of salvation that God had given us. Um, if you go to Romans 8, uh, you hear something about this concept of assurance. Paul writes, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership. And by him, the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the word Abba or Abba there is not simply a translation, uh, but it's actually a form of the way of addressing Father that's very intimate. It really is more like Daddy. It reflects not simply that we have a relationship with the Heavenly Father that's somehow out there kind of impersonal, but rather that we have a personal and intimate relationship with God, that, that we are in love with God and we know that God is in love with us in this tight relationship. Uh, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. This passage lets us know that, that in that moment when we receive that gift of salvation, uh, you know, we're brought into this relationship, we're adopted as children of God, and that the Spirit then bears witness with our spirit. That, that any time we, we reach out to God in that intimate way, it's a, it's a witness uh, that we're children of God and that God has claimed us in that way. Wesley's desire was for all Methodists to come to know the joy of their salvation, to have that assurance of the gift of salvation, and that all the work of sanctifying grace would be done from that place, a place of knowing that we are beloved children of God. Not as an effort to earn God's favor, but as a way of living out our response to God's love that was given to us. And when we discover that, it moves us from an obsessive pursuit of our salvation uh, to living in a blessed assurance of it. This was a vital thing for Wesley to do and his desire that all Methodists would live from that kind of joy. And I'm, I'm wondering as I speak to you this morning, how many of you uh, experienced that as a reality in your life? And many years ago, when I did uh, first walk to Emmaus that I went on um, and was working on that, we came down to the end of the week and uh, at the closing service, a gentleman who was in his 70s at this point in time, a, a leader of the church, someone that I had known for decades, got up and said, I've been in the church all my life, and this is the first time I've actually experienced the love of God. Two things happened out of that moment. One was that uh, it convinced me that we, we needed to have more people attending walks to Emmaus uh, so that they could experience that. But, but the other was it just struck me that he had been in the church for seven decades 
Uh, and this was the first time he'd experienced that. And it made me wonder how many, how many of us are like Wesley in the first part of his life. That prevenient grace has given us some conscience and some morality and some knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but it's also made us aware of our brokenness, of our spiritual disease, of our sinfulness. But instead of allowing ourselves to be justified by God, we are, we are still working as hard as we can trying to justify ourselves or working as hard as we can because we think we have to convince God somehow or another. We're in that obsessive pursuit of our salvation. And how many of us have stepped into that relationship with God and walk in that assurance of our salvation, the joy of salvation, uh, the love of that salvation that allows us now to act in grateful response to that gift of love. I, I, I don't know where you're at in that, and uh, unfortunately I can't see your faces uh, to know how you're hearing all of this and responding to it, but, but I want to encourage you that if you're not walking in that assurance and that joy of your salvation, I want to encourage you to seek it every minute and every day. Don't, don't settle for just hearing about it. Uh, don't just acknowledge that it's out there. I want to encourage you to pray into that and to long for it, to beseech God with all your heart to bless you with that gift of joy and assurance so that, that you walk in that and that all of your life is lived in response to that great gift of God's love uh, that makes us right with God, that reclaims us as children of God so that every minute every every day, you are walking in the knowledge that you are a beloved child of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you and we confess that we are all too aware of our brokenness, of our hurt, of our, our failures, of, of our sinfulness, of our spiritual disease. And we are all too aware that instead of trusting you and bringing that to you, uh, too often we try to deny it or we become defensive or we try to fix it on our own until eventually we come to the knowledge that we cannot fix it on our own. So Father, hear us this morning as we come to you uh, unholy, unworthy, just as we are, and we bring ourselves into your presence Warm our hearts as you did our brother Wesley's. Let us know, beyond any doubt, that in Christ we have received salvation, that our sins, even ours, even mine, are forgiven. We ask you to restore to us the joy of your salvation and that blessed assurance and allow us to walk in that and to do everything we do in your name from that. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.